If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. On today's episode, we're bringing you a fascinating conversation with a winner of this year's Dan David Prize, the prize of which History Extra is a media partner, recognises outstanding scholarship that illuminates the past and seeks to anchor public discourse in a deeper understanding of history. Today's guest is Dr Bart Elmore. Bart is Associate Professor of Environmental History at The Ohio State University, and his research looks into the environmental impacts of global capitalism, from Coca-Cola and plastic use to pesticides. Bart spoke to the author broadcaster and public historian Helen Carr, who's working with us on this series. Professor Bart Elmore, thank you so much for coming on the BBC History Extra podcast to discuss your research, which is so exemplary that you are now a 2022 winner of the prestigious Dan David Prize. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So your work on the environment, agriculture and capitalism in the U.S., it's extremely important, especially as we look at ways now to decrease our, our impact on the planet on a, a micro and a macro scale. Before we begin, I was wondering if you would be able to introduce yourself and your role and how and what led you to agriculture and capitalism. Sure. Yes. Um, and thanks for having me. I am an environmental historian, which if you had told me 
that I was going to be an environmental historian 20 years ago, I would have said, you're crazy because I didn't even know that it was a field. It's a field that that's relatively young that kind of combines environmental science with history and looks at the relationship between humans and their natural environment, how they've shaped the natural environment, but also how tornadoes, disease, earthquakes have shaped history. And I found it kind of by chance. I was studying the history of the American South and I took this class and, and found environmental history and thought, wow, this is amazing. I'd always been someone who cared about the planet and the thought of being able to combine these two passions. It was like, you got to do it. And so I switched from my kind of trajectory I was on and uh, ended up writing this book on Coca-Cola and its environmental impact around the world. That, that story of Coke led me to Monsanto, the second book I wrote, um, because Monsanto was Coke's caffeine supplier. And so I ended up writing this almost eight-year-long project on the history of Monsanto and its environmental impact. And now I'm at Ohio State University. I'm an associate professor here teaching this, this uh, kind of courses on the history of business and the environment. And it's just a dream job. So I wanted to ask you about your book, Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism. How did Coca-Cola become such an iconic and dominant brand? And why was this trajectory so interesting to you? In fact, you know, as it inspired you to write an entire book on it. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that it still went back to the American South for me because I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I was born in this city that Coke was born in. And I like to think when we were growing up that we drank more Coke than water. I mean, it was just in the ether, so to speak. In fact, if you ordered any soft drink, it was always a Coke. You never said Pepsi. It was just, it was understood that you meant Coca-Cola. So, and I went to this school, this high school actually in Atlanta that was um, the same school that the, what what people called the boss of Coca-Cola, Robert Woodruff. Uh, he went there, this guy who ran the company from the 1920s to the 19, really to the 1980s. And, you know, we passed this statue every day, this statue of this guy with this big cigar, by the way, which I don't know what that was supposed to teach us about tobacco consumption as kids. But uh, anyway, but, you know, we're surrounded by this myth or this kind of uh, this lore of Coca-Cola. And, and I think that was the, the starting point for that project. And you, you said, you know, that was the same question that drove me. Why, how is it that a company like this could from my little hometown could be everywhere, selling 1.9 billion servings of their product every day today. Wow, I wanted to know. I thought that most people who had written about it said marketing and advertising, you know, that it was a lot about the Santa Claus and cuddly polar bears that helped sell Coke to the public. There's no doubt that's true, but as an environmental historian, the question was, how did they get the natural resources they need at such low cost to be able to sell that much stuff? And so that's what I really focused on was how strategic they were in, able, in accessing sugar. You know, they were the largest consumer of sugar on the planet by the 19-teens. Caffeine. I mean, I didn't even know where they got their caffeine from. And it turns out ingenious strategies of recycling the waste of the tea industry and finding this caffeine for cheap to be able to put in their beverages. So I think part of the story of how they became so successful was just figuring out how to get those natural resources at such low cost. And that's kind of what I document in that first book. So I didn't know that initially Coca-Cola marketed their core ingredients separate to water. So isn't it that water had to be added? Like, I suppose, how you would make squash today. So how did this change? I think, you know, it starts out, as you said, as this kind of bizarre, as it was, as it was advertised at the time, a brain tonic that cures 
all sorts of things, including brain worry. Who wouldn't want to have a taste of that? And it was a really wild drink in a way. I mean, it was it was a patent medicine. It was designed to heal you in, in ways. It had, you know, traces of the coca leaf in it from Peru. It had caffeine, uh, some of it coming from the cola nut in West Africa. That's the term Coca-Cola. And you can see as an environmental historian, I, I stress those points, that, that there was a natural resource story here that often gets overlooked. It's almost like it's magic. It comes out of nowhere. It comes out of a factory, as opposed to thinking about all these different ingredients that are in it that all come from really all over the world. And um, as you said, I mean, at the beginning, it was just a drink that you would get at a soda fountain. And, and it, it would be this thick syrup that the soda fountain person would pour in a glass, and then they would mix in this carbonated water. The real shift, I think, to your point was thinking about the bottling empire um, that they built starting around 1899. And the person who ran the company at the time, Asa Candler, thought that bottling would never work. He, he just didn't believe in it. And he was convinced by these two Chattanooga lawyers to try it. And boy, was it fortunate for them that they did because bottling became the real answer. And what made that so great is now you can sell this syrup, which is still how it works, you know, to bottlers all over the world. And they can add water at the point of sale. And the markets you could get to with bottles was just so remote. I mean, most people listening to this have experienced this. They've been in some small town or some location and found a a Coke somewhere. So I'd actually say it's not so much what's changed. It's actually the system that they developed in the 19th century is still in place in a way, this kind of almost outsourcing strategy, you know, where Think about it. 80% of the drink is water, and yet it's sourced at the point of sale by a bottler, probably a local bottler somewhere. It's a really remarkable system uh, of kind of not owning and operating much of the infrastructure that made this product so successful. They were kind of the middleman in the, in the economy in a way, taking all these ingredients from independent producers that were making all this stuff, the sugar, the caffeine, mixing it together in a secret formula. And then selling this stuff to independent bottlers who paid for the bottles and the trucks and the, the gasoline and the, the water that went into the, the final beverage. So it's, it's a nimble strategy in a way for a company that's so big. I, I'm interested as well. You know, you were talking about all of the different places that the ingredients were sourced. And, you know, what is it about Coca-Cola that has allowed it such longevity as a brand? How are they able to keep obtaining all of these ingredients at such a consistent level? I think one of the strategies that you see very clearly in the history is partnering closely with the federal government is a very smart strategy for the firm. They often, especially in their early history, almost had a revolving door between the State Department and the company and and very close relationships with U.S. presidents. I think from the very beginning, they recognized that if they were going to be as, as big and as strong as they wanted to be, they were going to have to have this kind of connection, you know, that you see this most clearly in the Coca story. You know, most people know that early in the 20th century, Coca-Cola moved to try and remove any trace of cocaine, the alkaloid cocaine in their drink. And that's true. Around 1903, we think uh, it's tough to, to pinpoint the exact date. We know that Candler, the president of the company, is partnering with this other company to make sure that there's no cocaine in their beverage, uh, no trace amounts. But what most people don't realize is that the coca leaf flavor remained in the drink. The coca leaf, in other words, remained a secret ingredient. It was the flavor of the coca leaf. Without the cocaine that often is associated with the coca leaf, that was removed. But the flavor profile was, was still there. 
And that meant that for the most of the 20th century and into the 21st century, Coke was still secretly getting these coca leaves from Peru. And that was where they sourced it. I actually found these documents in the National Archives here in the United States that show this very clearly, these coca leaves coming into the United States for Coca-Cola. And again, it was just that flavor that they were looking for. But they would not have been able to secure that contract but for their close relationship with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and ultimately the Drug Enforcement Agency, which created these kind of exemptions in a way and Congress passed this law that basically created these exemptions that allowed Coca-Cola to bring in these leaves for flavoring purposes, but essentially prevented, you know, the bringing in of these leaves for any other purpose um, other than for legitimate medical uses. So we call this in economics a monopsony. You know, they had this single buyer access to coca leaves that the government essentially sanctioned. And you could argue that that's a pretty big asset to have, this this ingredient pipeline that you have access to that other companies don't. And you see this kind of time and time again in their history, these kind of unique um, exemptions they get and, and special deals that help them uh, along the way. You mentioned earlier um, the idea of reusing these, these glass bottles and how originally this was seen as an absurd idea. But now, you know, we're facing a different issue in that these glass bottles are not being reused in, yes. in the same way as they were. And, I think you've talked about Coca-Cola being one of the leading impacts on the environment in regard to plastic bottles. How far are the Coca-Cola to blame for the extraordinary amount of plastic bottle waste, which is pumped through recycling or more of the problem, as you've demonstrated, and not actually pumped through recycling? And I think, you know, this is a company that has a big footprint there and I think has a, a large responsibility to try and correct what's gone wrong. I know Greenpeace came out with a study at some point recently that showed, you know, looking at beach trash and trying to assess, you know, what's the largest plastic polluter that Coke was way up on top on on those lists. And I think um, it's just an incredible amount. If you think about, again, that statistic I gave you that they put out, this is their statistic, 1.9 billion servings every day. I mean, think about there's 7 billion plus billion people on the planet. That's just... I think it's hard for us to fathom the scale of that, right? And what that means on a day-to-day um, you know, trajectory and prize, I think, in a way, I think what, you know, motivated me as a historian was to think about, well, can we learn, can we look to the past and see a way out of this plastic problem? Is there ways to take history and make it applied and useful? And in this case, I think it was so clear cut. As you said, I mean, we had this returnable glass bottle system in the United States and then ultimately globally in the early 20th century that lasted, you know, into the 1950s, 60s even, where people would have a glass bottle of Coke and they'd drink it and then they would return it to their bottler. And it's very clear why it worked. It worked because there was a deposit. There was a price on that package. And when you brought the package back to your bottler, guess what? You got some money back. And we see this in countries around the world that practice this kind of deposit system. But in the United States, we only have 10 states that require companies to put a price on the packaging, to put a deposit on that bottle so that when people return it, they get money back. And we see that once we moved away from that deposit system, which we did here in this country and in many countries in the 60s and 70s, as we switched to aluminum cans and plastic bottles, There was just no incentive for people to bring this stuff back. And so if you go back to the early 20th century, you'll see bottles that were doing glass bottles, 60, 70, 80, 90 trips back and forth between consumer and bottler. It was amazing. It was like, we think we're so great and environmentally friendly now. I mean, 
they had such high reclamation rates. 90% of these bottles were coming back. And the industry even knew it, the, the society we're living in today, where in the United States, for example, 30% of PET plastic bottles are recycled, 70% end up in landfills and, and are wasted. It's, it's a failing system, and we, we can see in history a way to get around that. And I think part of it is put a price on that packaging for reuse, reusability, I think, is clearly the best way to try and prevent some of these bigger environmental issues we're seeing. Because even if you do recycle, there's a cost to that. There's emissions that come from recycling and heating up those materials. There's waste in that process. And I think reusability could be a path forward. And we can see examples from the past where it worked. And maybe if we reclaim that past, we can get out of this plastic pollution waste we're, we're buried in right now. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It involves confronting a historical mindset that was developed in a very specific time that made sense in the context of that time and has lasting power because it it made it easier to farm for many people. But ease isn't always the best way forward. And I think in this case, uh, we can see just a lot of problems with the system as it stands. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. So much of the way we exist and, our, you know, the way we live our day to day is influenced by the sort of higher powers, the the, the, the bigger structures, the supermarkets, the um, big food companies. So one of the issues that you tackle is, is um, herbicides, something that affects the food we eat and the production of these herbicides on such an enormous scale. How did this come about? And importantly as well, do you think that it was necessary that it, it came about in the first place? Yeah, I think I always I say in the book that whether you're a tofu eating vegan or, a, you know, a high fructose corn syrup soft drink drinker or, you know, you just like a Big Mac, you're, you're encountering herbicides or pesticides in part because of the way that our food system has developed. And, and especially in the last several years where chemical herbicide use has exploded in part because of the use of genetically engineered crops, it, it's a world that 
I think 60, 70 years ago would have seemed kind of crazy or wild. This, you said origins of it, it, my mind immediately thought war, you know, that, that really this kind of chemical intensive pesticide heavy type of agriculture was born of war. One could argue World War I, but also really World War II in earnest. Um, a lot of these chemicals were being created in the context of this global conflict and in the context of trying to figure out, can we defoliate jungle environments and expose enemy combatants more easily in certain parts of the world? And we see things like 245T, 24D, these wonky named herbicides that are coming out of the World War II era that become critical to farming in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Is that just is that down to the lack of I mean the lack of uh, the lack of manpower? So you you just physically do not have the the manpower on the ground to be able to produce all of this food to, to serve a growing community. You know, it, it, do you think that it was when I said it was it was it a necessary thing? Yeah, I guess that's sort of what I meant. Yeah, totally. I think it's necessary if you want to grow food a certain way. And that's what was happening at this time, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. The goal, in so many ways, the growth of what would later that this term would have been coined yet, but the term agribusiness. You know, we think of this period, 40s, 50s onwards, as a period of tremendous consolidation of agriculture. Tractors, which of course had been and mechanized infrastructure, which had been tinkered with in the teens and 20s, but people point to that period as that's right when tractors emerged. But of course, these early tractors were just extremely difficult to operate, very expensive. I mean, it it was only kind of elite and experimental group of farmers that were willing to go into it. But by the 30s and 40s, the perfections in that technology have meant that now you can farm in a totally different way. And you can do so, as you said, with fewer hands, farmhands. And you're seeing that kind of rural depopulation happening as early uh, as the 40s, 50s, as we go into the 60s. And that's, as I said, that's a different type of agriculture. So could we have done it differently? No, I think we could have. But the goal at that time was to get big and get big fast and to do it in a way that was heavily mechanized, to see your farm as a factory. There's a great book. I'm, I'm, I'm channeling a great historian, Deborah Fitzgerald here, who's book is called Every Farm a Factory, and how that mindset of the industrial Model T Ford assembly line was was really so addictive that it became part of the the model for farming as well. And if you're farming in that way, and if your goal is to get as big as you can and to grow as much as you can and to produce as much yield as you can, then I think this, the, the allure of these chemicals, which would make it easier for you to weed, right? You can spray these chemicals. It has this magical effect of wiping out a lot of your, your, your pests became the kind of preferred mode moving forward. But, but as we see today, I mean, a lot of these pesticides are being used specifically on three types of crops, cotton, corn, and soybeans. And I, I say that, you know, if we're really serious and we talk to these companies that are saying well, we're all about feeding the world, we're trying to increase the, our yield of soybeans or corn. I mean, most of this stuff is going for fodder to feed animals. In fact, we have so much corn in this country, we've, we're trying to figure out what to do with it. We, we turn it into ethanol. We turn it into fuel. We turn it into high fructose corn syrup. There's such a surplus. And I think the issue is really less, I think, about can we find another chemical that can get us just one more, you know, pound per acre of this yield. 
versus saying, Why, what are we growing? <laughs> you know? And could we grow a much more diversified arrangement of foods that actually would be foods that humans consume as opposed to fodder for animals or other things? And um, can we do this in a different way? Um, but I think like, like with uh, the pollution problem, it involves confronting a historical mindset that was developed in a very specific time that made sense in the context of that time and has lasting power because it, it made it easier to farm for many people, you know. But ease isn't always the best way forward. And I think in this case, uh, yeah, we can see just a lot of problems with the system as it stands. Sure. Like in a post-war world, you know, we need to feed the masses and feed them quickly. That that makes sense. I mean, I'm a medievalist and I write about the Great Famine and, you know, the result of that, people having to eat their dogs. Nobody wants to be in that position, of course. However, you know, it's kind of like this is a monster that has just kept growing and growing and fed into this capitalist world. And I think yield became the became this kind of sacrosanct mantra yield, yield, yield. And oftentimes without us questioning what we're growing and how it's distributed, or even fundamentally confronting the poverty that underlies hunger in many places. When you think about the Green Revolution, which spread around the world, and you know, there's been wonderful scholarship in recent years that's been talking about how these programs focus so heavily on yield, in part because of the spectacle that that would invoke in a a battle at a time. This was the Cold War, thinking about the Green Revolution of the 50s, 60s, and onwards of of going to India and other places and showing this bounty. It was in part this kind of um, competition to show capitalism versus communism and what wins out. And the spectacle of those bountiful grain productivity was its own kind of, had its own kind of value in, in that kind of clash between ideologies. But, but, most people were also saying, yeah, but if you're going to eliminate hunger, you're going to have to solve these issues of poverty and, and inequality and all these other things. That's a little bit too messy. It's easier just to produce this bountiful uh, crop of grain, you know, than, than to confront those bigger issues. Do you think that we can take a step back and be uh, be more conscientious of, of what we're doing to the to the earth and to the crops? Helen, you and I both kind of chatted a little earlier and we mentioned we have kids and and I think about them. I mean, I do, right? When we talk about something like this, I think about them almost every time. It's weird. It's almost like it's visceral. And yet I'm like you. I, I, I have an optimism on this one. I wrote the Monsanto book. It took almost a decade to write. So I've been living this for, for a very long time. I've had kids in the middle of it. I've been thinking about the future and, and how do we sustain all this? And what's been really amazing, I think, in the last several years is just watching the, the resistance to that type of system, to, to other ways of thinking, meeting farmers who ha- have spent their whole lives farming one way, but that have transitioned and are, want to tell me their story of how they, they were all in on this kind of heavy chemical use system. But they've realized it was kind of a dead end for them and that they wanted to pivot to what they saw as a more long-lasting and um, even profitable future for them. And that has given me tremendous amount of hope. In other words, one could argue that the system in recent years of this type of agriculture, which has been so reliant on heavy uses of herbicides, for example, we could talk about insecticides too, but but this herbicide issue has been something I follow very closely, has led to these problems that I think um, 
is, is, is opening an opportunity for another way of thinking. You know, you could argue that some of the failings of that system that we're seeing so clearly now are providing the, uh, the window for, for people to say, you know what, um, maybe, I, maybe using cover crops more frequently would be smarter. Maybe, um, maybe I really need to pay attention to the soil health a little bit better, you know, and gosh, these chemical pesticide costs are going up for me. Maybe I can find a way around it. And so I, I'm, I'm really actually hopeful um, and, and having met people here in Ohio, the farm country here and other places that are doing it differently. You know, I think in just having conversations and, 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 and looking to the past, I think, gives encouragement to people who are clearly looking for something new and different. And, and um, so I'm pretty hopeful. I think things are, uh, I think things are changing right now and, and for the better. It's wonderful to talk to you and hear how history can be so useful. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly talking about how history is useful to the present. However, <laughs> what you're doing is really giving us examples of what went wrong and how we can go to look to the past to actually recover some of the good stuff and re-implement it in the, in the present. I mean, how, how far do you think your research will be able to contribute to an, avoiding an environmental crisis regarding produce? And and how do you see it being implemented in wider discourse around environmental studies going forward? Yeah, you know, I was really struck by what happened after this book came out. And uh, I haven't shared this with many people, but Bayer, which had bought Monsanto in 2018, reached out after the book came out. And we have begun a conversation. And I think there will be an opportunity to actually talk to more people inside the company. It is a rare and weird scenario I never really saw coming. When you write a book like this, usually you're expecting, as, as sometimes happened, and as happened a little bit with the cookbook, a kind of backlash or an attempt to kind of criticize the critic. And there's an opportunity for at least a conversation. Now, I'm, I'm very op- aware that that has all sorts of, I mean, anyone listening to this would think, well, you know, there's pitfalls to, to there and maybe how sincere is a company in terms of willingness to change? You're someone who studied the past, and I think you you would appreciate this. I think what I've learned from history is that even businesses that we may think of as having all these this you know really difficult ethical past is often filled with good people. Is filled with people that have the full range of human emotions that you would expect humans to have, and I. I think history has trained me to listen and to at least engage in dialogue. And especially at a time right now where it's so easy to see each other as enemy, history teaches us that that's just not healthy and that it's much better to to believe in the possibility of change, to recognize that most people aren't out just to, to screw over the planet. You know, they want to find purpose and meaning in life. And, uh, so I, I, I was just really struck by that. I'm, I was struck that the tone that I took in this book, it was not designed to either shirk from the really unethical things I wanted to point out from uh, that this company had done. But I also wanted to make sure that I was writing a human story that tried to show that there were real people in this that have, that are parents, that do think about the future, that may have may have created a technology that had real problems and want to fix it. So I'm hopeful there too, weirdly. But I will say this, I'm, I don't think I'm going to wait for Bayer to solve our problems for us. I think that, or Coke for that matter, that that has become a very popular thing too. What is Coke going to do to save us about, from plastic? What is, what is this company going to do to save us from our food problems? I think that kind of logic 
is inherently flawed. I think we as the citizens of our countries have to make the rules and decisions. If we think plastic pollution is is abominable, we can set certain standards that say that's not okay. And we've done that in the past, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, things like that. I still think that the biggest changes are going to come from outside of these firms. And we can't keep on waiting for Coke to save us or Monsanto to save us or Bayer to save us, right? Which almost sounds crazy. But if you look at the sustainability reports, that's how it's pitched. We're going to come in and solve this problem. And in fact, I think it's going to be us, the farmers, the regular people growing food who are going to make these decisions. And and, uh, I hope we do. That was Dr. Bart Elmore, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Ohio State University. Bart was speaking to the author, broadcaster and public historian Helen Carr. He's one of the winners of this year's Dan David Prize, the world's largest history prize which recognises outstanding historical scholarship. If you'd like to hear more conversations between Helen and other winners of the Dan David Prize, you can access the whole collection early and ad-free now at historyextra.com slash dan david prize. And you can find out more about the Dan David Prize, including their events and the other winners at dandavidprize.org. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt. 